Great to see you all tonight. Quick question. How many, uh, how many college students, Linwood students, we have back here tonight? Let's give it up for these guys. They're back in school. Yes. I've actually put this slide up for them. Um, this is the United States of America, okay? And uh, this is where you live, okay? So for those of you that struggle in geography, I just wanted to you have some association with some maps and where you live. I, I, I was looking at this map yesterday and not this particular one, but another map of America. And I was thinking about that map in conjunction with what we've been studying. And I want to share some things that I've realized, if that's okay with you. Because of American arrogance, I feel like sometimes Americans view the Scriptures, the Bible, as a book that was written to Americans, for Americans, so that Americans could ultimately dominate the Christian subculture in the world. And so in that American arrogance, we view the scriptures through the lens of our American culture. Now this is obviously very problematic because the scriptures, although God knowing that we as Americans would one day read it, it wasn't originally written to us in this particular land at this particular time. It was written, next slide, to several different areas, including the one that we're studying right now, a little area called Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is around modern-day Turkey, and John and, and other apostles visit this area, preach the gospel very poignantly, teach people about Jesus, and then they set up churches all throughout this land that you're seeing. I want to bring out, though, some things that we haven't talked about in this particular land. Differentiated from Jewish culture, Asia Minor was very wealthy. What I mean is, in Jewish culture, the average Jew living in Israel worked very hard and was very poor. Any poor college students here? Yes, all three of you and the rest of you are lying. Repent now, right? Or if you're not lying, like, what are we doing later? You know what I'm saying? Let's go to Applebee's and hook it up, right? Um, Asia Minor was very wealthy as opposed to Jewish culture. In fact, the houses archaeological finds would reveal that they were made, many of them out of marble, had these huge marble columns. Oftentimes the floor was covered in mosaic glass. It was, uh, the, the streets were lined with shopping centers in Asia Minor. Many of you women are like, is that off I-70? Like, what exit is that? You know what I'm saying? I'd love to go there. It was a place of great wealth. And interestingly enough, in the culture of Asia Minor, it was a melting pot of all of these different groups of people. We're going to talk about that here in one second. Next slide. When Americans see this word God, G-O-D, there is a common rhetoric in which we as Americans describe God. And this is best emphasized by a conversation I had recently. Uh, a friend of mine who I know in our neighborhood was talking to me and he said, Yeah, you're a preacher, aren't you, Mark? Well, I'm, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a pastor, I get pre, whatever. It's like, yeah, I, I believe in God. But, but I'm not one of those Jesus freaks, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I ain't one of those guys. Are you a Jesus freak, Mark, you know? You're one of those Jesus freaks. Well, I believe in God, of course there's a God, but Je no. The average American would very much believe in God. In fact, the average American would say that God may very well be the God of the Bible. But when it comes to Jesus, there is a great disconnect. Now, listen to this. Next slide. In Asia Minor, when an average Asian Minorin, work with me, 
would see this phrase. This phrase is a phrase that we've talked about before. This phrase is theos agape estin. God is love. When an average person living in Asia Minor at the time of Jesus would have saw that word theos, the same word that we interpret as God. Do you guys understand what they're hearing? Listen to this. Asia Minor, Greek culture, okay? If you've seen any movies at all, you understand that in Greek culture, there isn't one God or two gods or three gods. There are dozens and hundreds of gods. And not just that. Asia Minor didn't just have Greeks in it. It also had what? Asians. All right? And so if you couple Greek culture with Asian influence, and then you have some Jews living there, you have theos chaos, all right? I worked on that one all day, you know? Theos chaos. Listen to this. When the apostles show up in Asia Minor, and they begin to say this word theos, when a person hears God, they are instantly confused in crazy proportion because all they've heard all their life is there are these gods and those gods and this god for that and this god for that. And then with the Asian influence, it's all mystic and new age and spiritual. And we need to burn incense. And then, oh, by the way, I'm a Jew living here and I believe in Yahweh. Utter chaos. So, do you understand that when the apostles show up, they're not talking about tweaking what the individuals in Asia Minor believe. They are talking about massive overhaul. Are you guys with me? Next slide. Now, two weeks ago, Jason taught amazingly the first five verses of 1 John chapter 5, and this is where he ended. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of what? God, I've just told you the Greek, the son of Theos, right? Some of you need to work on your quickness, right? The son of Theos. Listen to this. Yesterday, in my office, finally, I stepped back. Son of God. And then I started counting, 67 to be exact. Theos is in 1 John. Then I stepped back some more. And I realized John is so adamant about protecting the belief and the theology of these people because he spent time there and preached about the true God. What John and the other apostles did is they showed up and said, look, there isn't a God, there is the God. And the God is connected to Jesus as God. And it's not just Jesus, but there's also a spirit that's going to empower you. And so when these apostles came in Asia Minor, preaching and teaching, by the power of God, they were watching people's whole infrastructures be turned upside down, going from believing that there are all these gods to believing there is the God. The God of the scriptures who sent his son Jesus and ultimately raised from the dead to send the spirit to empower believers that would come after them. I stepped back from 1 John, looking at the 67 theoses, and wondered if right now we might understand a little bit better the context that John writes with. That we might understand a little bit more of the passion and the reason why he says, verse 6, 7, and 8, 
which is what we studied last week. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Last week we learned this, that Jesus just isn't God at at his baptism. He is God on the cross. The blood dripping down from the cross is God in in the person of Jesus, his Son. And it's because of that belief that John's going to continue tonight to make his case for why you and I and the readers in Asia Minor should believe that there isn't just a God, but there is the God. So I ask, shall we dance? Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. If you're new here, you just got confused. Don't worry about it. It's just going to break out and dance in song. What's happening? 1 John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in your face there, okay? So grab it and let's turn there. 1 John chapter 5 verse 9 is where we're going to begin tonight. So excited about this and seeing what happens here. I can sense your excitement as well. Thanks for the encouragement. Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Verse 9 is very interesting. Put up verse 9 for me. Now, as we study the scriptures tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to We're going to put a summary statement on each of these four verses. We're going to study verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. The summary statement of verse 9 is this. The testimony is God's and God's alone. It's God's story. It was born out of Him. Ultimately, it has nothing to do with us as mere humans beyond the fact of being able to be restored to relationship with God through His Son. But it's His story. He's designed it. He's made it. And what John says is, are you seriously going to believe the testimony of men over the testimony of God? We bank a lot on the testimony of men, don't we? Don't we? Yeah, thanks for one person nodding. Right? If you watch the news, if you've ever taken a history class, Ever been to court? Anyone want to admit that later? We'll talk. Yeah, yeah. You know that we bank very highly on man's testimony. Now, the interesting thing about the word receive is it's the Greek word lambano. Everyone say lambano. Now, lambano means to take something that someone else's and to receive it as one's own. So, what John is saying is, look. In your search for truth as a human, we say all the time here, everyone everywhere from Abu Dhabi to here is looking for two things, love and truth in that order. In your search for truth, what John is saying is that you land so quickly at the testimony of man and you receive it for yourself. If we're to compile tonight all of the list of the hurt and pain that compiles in this room from you believing the testimony of man, we would be here for years consoling one another. If we were to compile the number of times that you believed somebody, believed their testimony, believed the words that they said, and then ultimately that caused you hurt and pain, do you understand that we would be here for days, for years, consoling one another? What John is saying You don't have to settle for the testimony of any man. You don't have to settle 
for a Gnostic heresy that you hear in your ear attacking the person of Jesus. You don't have to settle for that. Why? Because the testimony, the martyria, which is the Greek word, which literally is the same word that means martyr, which literally means to testify about in all circumstances, you can believe the testimony not of man but of God. Then here's, here, here's what I ask. Then why are we tr- still trying to save people with our story? If the testimony of God is God's testimony and speaks for itself, then why are we still trying to sell people and save people which we can do neither of with our story. In other words, there's this scapegoat called our testimony at times. It's beautiful, isn't it, what God's done in your life? It's powerful, it's incredible, and needs to be talked about. But if you devoid your story from what Christ has done on the cross... If all you talk about is how you were a drunkard and now you're not. How you were a porn addict and now you're not. How you were struggling and now you're not. And you say, don't you want that God who can change your life? And you don't talk about the blood. You are miscommunicating the story of God. It's not your story. It's how God's story has, yes, changed you. And so he says, look, this story, this testimony is about what God has said concerning what? Concerning His Son, Jesus. What I want to do in my life, what I want to encourage you all to do, is to repent of the times that you are accepting the testimony of a mere man over the testimony of God. What John's case is, is you have enough sufficient word from the straight mouth of God. And that's why he's imploring his readers to believe it. Verse 10, put up verse 10 for me. It says this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. Now this is a tricky verse. Uh, Put up the summary statement for me. The summary statement is the testimony lives in believers. Let me talk about this. This is amazing. When God sends the Spirit to seal, like we sang a little bit ago, when He sends the Spirit to indwell in believers, do you understand that the Spirit's greatest role is to testify in your life, about the power of Christ. Do you guys understand that? More than conviction, more than discernment, the role of the Holy Spirit is to continually affirm in you the reality of Jesus. Let me show you how this works. Have you ever been in a deep moment of despair? Sitting in the corner of your room as a Christian, feeling all alone, feeling like no one understands. There's crazy thoughts running through your mind. You've just messed up. You don't know where to turn. You have no one to text and no one to call because no one will understand. And then all of a sudden, you look in your scripture. And in a moment that only you will ever be able to describe, you feel 
overwhelmed by the grace of God. You feel overwhelmed by the love of Christ. Have you had one of those moments? Have you had a moment when an exuberant amount of joy, you sat in that same room, can't wait to text, can't wait to call, can't wait to share with the world what God has done. And there, in your own room, all by yourself, all of a sudden, you recognize the amazing story of God again. And He renews it in you, even though you know it, and you've been to church a million times, and you've heard it. Aren't those moments so refreshing? What I'm telling you is, is that is the Spirit inside of you, continually, for lack of a better term, gospeling you daily reminding you of the cross, reminding you of Jesus. And friends, aren't those moments precious? I would contend this, that most often those moments happen with the Bible open, with the Spirit stirring in a deep moment of prayer. And so we're back to the same place we are often. So why aren't our Bibles open, right? We say all the time here at Matthias, you're never going to hear, read your Bible more and pray more. Never going to hear it. Why? Because we don't believe that discipline drives love of God. You want to read and study all you want, and that can be completely devoid of a, of a love of God. They call those people stoic theologians who sit in an office and never have once told anyone about Jesus. The difference is, is people who wake up every morning are reminded because the, the testimony lives in them of who God is and your heart is, I cannot wait to learn more about you. And there in the moments at 7.15 for you college students at noon, you're just sitting there and you're reminded again of the gospel. Listen, could there be any greater thing, church, to be daily, continually reminded of the gospel? God is brilliant. Right? That, that would be a great time for you to say amen. Right? Some of you are struggling with that. You're like, I'm not so sure. You know, I don't know. No. God is brilliant in that he didn't just send Jesus and then send Jesus away back in heaven, sit him at the right hand of God. No. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit. Why? So that my Christians, my believers, my followers, my sheep will continually, continually, continually remember Jesus. And in doing so, be brought to mission. You guys see what I'm saying? The testimony lives in believers, but that's not the most troubling piece of this verse, is it? Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This is the fifth statement about being a liar that John has already said in 1 John. He says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. He says, if you say I know God, but do not keep his commandments, liar. He says, anyone who denies Jesus is a liar. And he says, if you say you love God, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. So here's what he says. If you say you do not believe in God, you're saying you are a liar. Now, I need to take a few steps back, okay? You guys with me? Right now, already in Jason's intro and in some of the things that I've already shared, you've heard the gospel. The gospel is we are sinners, completely depraved. The reality is is that God 
sets this list of rules to show us how much we need Jesus. He then sends Jesus, lives obediently, perfectly, dies on a cross, not as a mere man, but as a God-man. His blood is atonement for our sins. He takes on the wrath of God. He then raises from the dead, sends the Spirit. That's the gospel. Then his followers, empowered by the Spirit, go and live like Jesus. Not perfectly. If we say we have no sin, John already said, you're a liar. But empowered by the Spirit, looking different from culture. So, some of you right now, after hearing that, you would say, lie. That's not true. Jesus didn't really do that. Jesus really isn't God. That's what the Gnostics were saying. And that's why John says they're liars. Now, unfortunately in our culture, in a culture of acceptance and love, we believe that unbelief is a state of mind. Well, I don't believe, but you know, you can believe whatever you want, right? This is a, this is a low critical society. Low accountability, just come, be as you are. We'll sing, it's a, small, it's a small world all day long. It'll be great, you know. The problem is, is unbelief is not a state, it is a sin. Your unbelief, some of you in that chair, in that pew right now, it's not a state of mind, it is a sin. Any moment that you would look to Father God, to Yahweh, to the God of this universe, the God of this universe, and you would say, what you say is not true. It's not a state of mind. It's not a state of heart. It is sin. Here's what Spurgeon says. Any Spurgeon lovers? Okay, just me. The great sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is often spoken of very lightly and in a very trifling spirit as though it were scarcely any sin at all. Yet, according to my text, and indeed according to the whole tenor of the Scriptures, unbelief is the giving of God the lie, and what can be worse? So some of you theologians, you're looking in your Bibles, and you're looking for the out. Problem is, John doesn't give it even though he may believe in God's sovereignty, which he in fact does, he also knows this. God's sovereignty never negates personal responsibility. Every single one of you sitting in your pews are responsible for your belief or your unbelief. Mark, this is getting harsh. All we're doing here, friends, is teaching the scriptures. And if, if you'll notice something about Matthias, we're not pulling this take that off. I just called that scripture. That was dangerous. Thank you, right? We're not pulling scripture and just throwing some topical name on it, all right? We're going right through the word. And so if you're here and you're like, man, this is harsh. It's the word of God. Oh, the moments. Oh, the moments when there are friends of yours who at one point said, you're a liar. And you thought in your mind that they were too much of a drunk, that they were too self-righteous, that they were too, too much of a sex fiend. Oh, the moment when you got to watch some of you, God, take your friend and go from you're a liar to you're my savior. You're my God. I desire to follow you all the days of my life. There is nothing that can separate me from your love. 
That's the power of what John is communicating in this land that is confused about who God is. He's saying, my God, not your God, my God. The God of the Bible takes people who point at him and say he's a liar. He grabs their heart. He saves them. And pretty soon they're saying, you're my savior. In a land that's worshiping all kinds of gods and goddesses, they estimate that by the year 100, there were 80,000 Christians in the most pagan Roman province. Why? Because that's how good God is. And God will always accomplish his will by his power for his glory. And so look, if there are some of you here tonight who in your sin and unbelief, you would say, you're a liar. Here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that God tonight takes you and says, my Savior, that God tonight grabs your heart. Because right now there's some of you that are getting defensive in your seat. And I pray that that defense turns to a softening. Verse 11 says this, put it up for me, Andrew. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Summary statement number three. The testimony is a gracious gift. Here's the amazing piece of verse 11. This is our statement. What do I mean? What do I mean? Every major religion has a statement similar, similar, I say that very loosely to this. Why? Because everyone wants to know what happens to me after I die. So some religions say that you'll come back as an animal. Some religions say that you'll have that you'll be a God and have multiple concubines. So everyone has a statement that's similar to this. Eternal life, and this is the way we view it. Is anyone a little bit excited that this is our statement? And, uh, and what does our statement say? It's a gracious gift. He gives it, and what does he give it through? His son Jesus only. This is our statement. We have eternal life, blessed eternal life, worshiping God forever, and he gives it by no merit, by no good deed, by no good word, by no good sermon ever preached, by no good homeless person you ever loved, by none of that. He gives it through his son. That's our statement. When I look at that, I sit back and I'm like, Praise God that you have opened my eyes and I don't believe in some of these other religions that are worthless. Mark, that's harsh. Is it? It takes more belief to to believe in some of those crazy mythologies than it does to say, God, thank you for the gift. Causing me to fall on my face and say, God, I want to worship you. So listen, if that's the statement, if the statement is that if the testimony is a gracious gift, then that better be what you're communicating. That better be the gospel that the church is portraying. John wants these people to believe in God, the God, not a God. He's working on the right belief. And here he says the consequence for the good of right belief. Eternal life, spent forever, no country club, golf course setting with God forever and eternity. And then he closes 
with this. Whoever has the Son has life. A Greek word there, this is going to cause some uh, tattoos. I can already see it. A Greek word here is Zoe, okay? If you're a male, there's a Christian band called Zoe Girl, okay? So uh, check your tattoo idea right there, right? The word Zoe for life, listen to this, means life real and genuine. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Whoever has the Son of God has what, Zoe? Real, genuine life. In John's communication of right belief of who God is, do you understand the communication of it? Look, you don't earn it. You don't do anything by it. You don't, it's His gift, and He doesn't just give you eternal life. He gives you life now. When we were studying the Gospel of Luke for eight and a half years, all right, one, we're, we're, we're only four this weekend, so that's, that was an exaggeration. It felt long. It was great, though, right? When we were studying Luke, and, and we studied certain parables, parables about the kingdom, do you remember what we constantly were saying? Jesus kept communicating, the kingdom is now and yet to come. It's like this dual mystery. The kingdom is here now, but it's also still going to come. This is the statement for Christians in this room and those in this room that hopefully even by the end of tonight are saying you are king, you are God. This is the statement that says you can have life now. You don't have to wait for eternal life. The flip side of the statement is this. Some of you in here are career-minded. Way to go. Right? You have a great job. You provide for your family. You're doing really, really well. You have amazing shoes. Okay? I was reaching there. Right? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you have nothing. I don't care how many dollars. Listen, I don't care how much your wife appreciates you. Or how much, you, how much your kids say, Oh, Daddy, thank you for taking us to that restaurant. Oh, Daddy, thank you for buying that for us. I don't care what they say. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. Some of you in here are in successful relationships as you would classify them. Right? You're dating somebody and you're like, Oh, this is the one. Everything's fine and dandy. We're so happy. We never argue except yesterday morning for the eighth time. Like, you know, it just seems perfect. Right? If that relationship isn't founded on Christ, there is no life in it. And if there's no life in it, then that means there is death in it. Some of you in here are amazing students. Okay? A's to the hilt. Right? You text your dad after that test, Daddy, thanks for chilling out the 10G. I got an A, you know? Right? Listen, listen. If you don't have Jesus... You have no life. John, at the end of this plead, after he was there, after he saw God change men, he writes back and says, listen, Asia Minor, do not be fooled by the lying heretics that say Jesus isn't God, that say the blood was spilt by a mere man. Don't listen to them. Listen to the testimony of God. 
And the testimony of God shown in his baptism, his death, and now in you in the spirit, all signs point to he is real, he is victorious, and he can live in you. And so I step back from all of that, and I'm back at the beginning. Is America that different than Asia Minor? I mean, maybe we don't worship Artemis in Ephesus like everyone did in Ephesus. Maybe we don't think Xerxes is a god. But have you, in your bunk theology, in your undeserved thinking, somehow came to the place that there are other gods than the God? Are you, as you sit in your pew, have you made yourself a God? Have you made your spouse a God? Have you created, in your own rendition, the exact thing that we sat back and said, Asia Minor, chaos. Is that what's happening in you? If you are worshiping, serving, glorifying, praising, living for any other God but the God, there is no life in you. Death has a hold of you. Church, we must repent of all other gods that we have put on the throne and believe the pleads of John that say there is one God who sent one Son, Jesus, who sent one Spirit to reside in believers so that forever we could sit back and marvel and say all of this peripheral junk has death in it and I want life even here and now. Church, listen. Have you made something else a God? A theos? Is porn your God? You worship it, you crave it, you desire it, you can't run from it. Is the dollar signs, the, the gathering of wealth, is alcohol, listen, is acceptance. So many of you struggle with the insecurity of acceptance. Have you made that your God? Here's what I'm asking. God, would you move in our hearts right now that would cause us, by the testimony inside of us, to remember Jesus and to marvel and right now in this moment be overwhelmed with the grace of God. Let's stand together.